for this series in Hebrews, True and Better, as we see how the author is presenting Christ continually as the true and better um, version or form of things past through the Old Testament or things that God has worked through with his people to point them to Jesus as the true and better, to point them to the Messiah that would was to come for them and has come for us. Uh, over the last couple of weeks, you've had uh, Andrew and Will um, covering. I'm so thankful for them to step in and uh, for Andrew doing double duty and Will doing double duty with two hours. And um, so thank you guys. Uh, I listened to both of those messages. Uh, I don't think it was normal speed. I think I was kind of crunched for time. So it might have been a, a quick skim, but uh, I heard both of them say, we're going to save Melchizedek for Jeremy. Um, and I told them today, well, I'm not diving very deep on Melchizedek. So the, between the three of us, hopefully everyone has a decent enough idea, or at least I'll whet your appetite to go and explore Melchizedek a little more. <clears throat> but last week, Andrew uh, gave us a warning against apostasy, and um, this may be a summary, this may be way off, but I think he said we, we must stick to the gospel, grow in it together, and anchor our souls to Jesus uh, and so today we'll look again at Jesus as the true and better high priest. It's kind of a part two because we did um, Jesus the high priest a couple weeks ago with Will. Uh, Will said that Christ was a suitable, sympathizing, and saving high priest. Um, so today we'll look again a little more at Melchizedek, this mysterious figure, and then unpack the new covenant, uh, which chapter eight kind of goes into. So this is chapter seven, and then we'll talk about that. <clears throat> For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever." See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from them receives tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life, for it is witnessed of him. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced, through which we draw near to God. And what is not without an oath, 
For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and it will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he's able to save the uttermost, those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Seven is a lot. But I'm going to recap, highlight, and kind of point out what is going on here. Uh, and so, simply put, to I summarize chapter 7, Melchizedek was great, but Jesus is greater. Melchizedek was great, but Jesus is greater. Just as uh, I think the last time that I was with you, uh, appreciating the greatness of Moses in Israel's history helped us to appreciate Jesus' superiority, as they were saying that Jesus is the true and better Moses, and for us, we're like, well, yeah, obviously, but to speak to the Israelites and say, Moses, like, this is a big deal, Moses. Jesus is way better than him. Um, that helped us to understand, to appreciate Moses in their eyes. Recognizing Abraham's greatness in Israel's eyes helps us to appreciate Melchizedek's greatness, which then gives us context for the greatness of Jesus. <clears throat> There's always a lot of debate in the sports world about who the goat is in each sport, the greatest of all time. Sometimes arguments end when people say, well, it's, it's apples and oranges because you can't compare previous generations or eras to current eras and uh, we'll never know, right, because of different rules or technology or supplements or training or whatever it was. Can you compare, you know, Wilt Chamberlain to Michael Jordan to LeBron? Um, apparently, Dennis Rodman came out and said that Larry Bird wouldn't even make the NBA in today's era. He'd be playing in Europe or something. And I think he was just looking for headlines because it's kind of a crazy statement. But uh, anyway, the conversation goes on, and there's no way to prove it, right? Because, like, well, we just can't know. It's just fun to think about. This is not the case with Jesus, right? He's not, oh, he's the Abraham of today or the Melchizedek of today. It would have been cool to see them in the same generation or see that matchup to see who was greater. No, it's, it's very clear cut. There's no contest. The conversation ends because Jesus is greater than Abraham, Moses, Melchizedek, etc. Case closed. And this is why. Back in Genesis 14, you can read how Abraham took a small army and won the Battle of Siddim, also known as the War of the Nine Kings, which I was like, wow, that sounds like Lord of the Rings or something, right? The Battle of the Five Armies. The War of the Nine Kings, and after Abraham wins the War of the Nine Kings, slaughtering the enemies who had taken Lot captive, he's returning with his kind of victory parade, right? He's loaded down with the spoils of war. He's collected all this loot from them. Melchizedek comes out to bless Abraham. And we see, as Will and Andrew both mentioned, Melchizedek is called both a king and a priest, which was not a thing. You were either a priest or maybe a king, but never, oh, you're the priest and also the king. <clears throat> so this is a really unique uh, combination that we find in Melchizedek. He wasn't a Levite, which was the priestly line in the people of uh, Israel. 
And he may not have even been Jewish at all, right? It says he's not a descendant of Abraham. And so uh, probably even strangely, a Gentile high priest who's a God-fearer, but also king um, of Salem. But in blessing Abraham, who was like on the Mount Rushmore of Israel's people, right? He proved that he is greater than Abraham. Because the lesser never blesses the greater. The greater always blesses the lesser. We just read that in chapter 7. Melchizedek is notably greater than Abraham. And Abraham acknowledges this not only by receiving the blessing, but by tithing to him. Right? He gives him a tenth of, of what he has won or acquired in war. And so uh, Melchizedek receives tithes. He receives the offerings uh, as someone who's worthy to, to receive those things. The author of Hebrews notes that Melchizedek is king of righteousness and peace by name. Uh, his name literally means king of righteousness. Um, to say he's the king of Salem, Salem means peace, and so he's the king of peace. Uh, this is not a combination that's thrown around very lightly, right? It's a very special combination. The name, um, the identity, the role as king, the role as priest. Um, and so many have argued that maybe Melchizedek is a theophany or a Christophany, which is a manifestation of God himself back in the Old Testament to say that uh, a pre-incarnate Christ came down and, and, and walked amongst us or showed himself in, in some way. And some, some people argue that that's what, who Melchizedek is, an embodiment of God. But the text points us in a different direction, I believe. It draws distinctions between Melchizedek and Christ but it does liken him to Christ. But I think it's a way to point us to Jesus, not to say the, this is Jesus. It's not equal. <clears throat> and so I would say the best approach here to treat Melchizedek as a shadow or a type of Christ. Uh, he's a king of peace, a king of righteousness. Jesus is, of course, those things perfectly. Uh, his lineage is a mystery. I think that's what we see here, even though it says that he has... Uh, there's no record of his lineage. Okay, we, we read that. It says he has no beginning of days or end of days. Um, I th believe that's just a reference to we don't have record of like where he comes from when he was born or, or when he died. It's just not, there's no history of it. And so there's a mystery there which kind of points to the true and better in Christ who is divine, right? And so Jesus is without beginning and without end. <clears throat> Excuse me. And so uh, his priesthood is not based on the tribe, like the Levites, um, which was a temporary priesthood, but it says his priesthood is forever because it was given by oath. And so that's another kind of pointing to Jesus, whose priesthood is for eternity because it was uh, declared by the Lord. And so Christ is the true and better Melchizedek, serving as the true and better high priest. Hebrews 7.26 says, Our high priest in Jesus is holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need to offer daily sacrifices. So all of this is unlike Melchizedek, right? Melchizedek was all of these things which are amazing and mysterious and point us to kind of point us to true and better. But in Christ, we have all of that plus holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens, and no need for daily sacrifices. Rather, Jesus never had to sacrifice on his own behalf because he is without sin. And he only had to offer himself up as sacrifice for sinners one time for all time because his sacrifice was sufficient. Not only is he the priest of a better sacrifice, chapter 8 tells us that he ministers in the true and better tabernacle of heaven at the right hand of the Father. This tabernacle or tent is permanent 
and was established by the Lord. Unlike the earthly temporary tabernacles, which they had to set up and take down as they wandered or moved around, uh, he's even truer and better than the temples, which were permanent per se, as in they were fixed and immovable, but they could be destroyed. Both were established by men, the tabernacles and the temples. But Jesus in the true and better tabernacle of heaven is established by the Lord. And this perfect and lasting priesthood culminates in his ministry to us as we see that Jesus is the high priest of a true and better covenant. So Hebrews 8, I'll read that now. We'll talk about the true and better covenant. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if we here on earth, he, now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old as, than the, old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. I almost named the series much more excellent, but went with true and better. Verse 7, for if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day that when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So in Hebrews 8, in that big chunk there, quoting Jeremiah 31, we see that Jesus is high priest of a true and better covenant. The author tells us that Christ obtained a much more excellent ministry than the old covenant because the new covenant is established on better promises. This isn't just a marketing ploy or sales tactic. It's not a repackaged, inferior, or outdated product. It's not just the allure of whatever is new and shiny. Sometimes we can be duped by the latest and greatest, even when there is no substance to back it up. We're prone to fall for these things. I once bought a book that I already owned because they had put a new cover on it, and I thought, oh, I need that. That looks like really something I should read. Uh, And then when I got it and started reading it, I was like, I think I've read this before. And I went and found it on my shelf and thought, oh, I already had all of this content on my shelf, but they put a new cover on it and made it look like something I needed to have that I didn't have, uh, and I fell for it. Another example, and this may not connect with you, but I have been wanting to show this video in church for a long time. It's a silly illustration. But 
In the early 70s, Italian singer-songwriter Adriano Celentano made, wait, 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 don't play it yet. <laughs> he made up, he wrote an entire song in the style of English, English American music, uh, because he was convinced, like, people aren't, don't care about the words. They don't care about the words. This American style is so popular, he's like, I can write a hit song, and it, it'll sound like American music. But the entire song is gibberish, other than the words, all right. So you might hear the words, all right. Um, but he does an American accent and American style, and the words are supposed to sound like English. So take a look at Prison Colonisilianokosolo. Even the title is gibberish. I can't even pronounce it, but check it out. Prison All right. get the idea. There's a couple of versions of that, actually, you can find online. But uh, anyway, I thought that was hilarious that this guy made this gibberish song, and it was a number one hit, uh, of course. Uh, he was right. He was like, people just want to hear that style. It's very popular. And so he made up a whole gibberish song, took it to number one, and uh, there you go. <clears throat> so the New Covenant is not, not a stylized. She gets a little solo. She plays harmonica later, too. Uh, it's not a stylized cultural fad created to lure us in, right, to, to garner our devotion, only to lack substance and meaning. Like if you were to print out the lyrics or to listen very carefully to him, he's not saying anything, right? Like I like his vibe, I like his style, but like he's not saying anything. That's not the new covenant. It really is a new and better covenant. We're told in Hebrews uh, when they start quoting Jeremiah 31, right? Why it's a better covenant? Because the Lord has declared this new covenant, and he says this is why it's better. These are the better promises that serve as the foundation for the new covenant. Uh, Kent Hughes kind of summarizes the better promises like this. The first is the promise of inwardness. Whereas the law of the first covenant was written on stone tablets, external objects, God's law in the new covenant is written on the minds and hearts of his people. We read in verse 10. It's this tattoo on the brain kind of implantation that supersedes the tablets of stone given to Moses. It's a heart of flesh, not a heart of stone. It is from the depths of our hearts and minds and wills that we are made new inwardly. And it's the Holy Spirit who guides us inwardly and convicts us internally according to God's will. Also in verse 10, we see the second promise is the promise of ultimate relationship. 
God says he will be our God and we will be his people. He claims us. We are his and he is ours. He loves us. He's committed to us. This is forever and undeniable. In verse 11, we see the third promise is the promise of knowing the Lord. Where before there was a challenge or a call to to others to make sure you told your neighbor to know the Lord because the old covenant was corporate, right? Israel entered into a covenant with God. And so not every individual member of Israel knew the Lord by faith. So the nation entered the covenant. So those who did believe in the Lord would have to tell their neighbor, know the Lord, know the Lord, I implore you, right? This new covenant says that everyone who believes in God knows him. John 17, 3, when Jesus is praying, he says, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So to be saved is to know God. We are not just associated with him or vaguely familiar with him, but intimately familiar with him, knowing God relationally and lovingly. And the final promise we receive, the promise of true and better forgiveness. While under the old covenant, the people of God had to return yearly to offer a symbolic sacrifice of atonement for their sin, which is to remind them of uh, how terrible their sin is, right? That something has to die, blood has to be shed to, to cover it. And even then it was symbolic because it wasn't once, one time for all time. It was come back again next year and we'll do it again. And the new covenant, Jesus offered himself as the all-sufficient sacrifice, not to be repeated. We'll dig deeper into that next week as Jesus is the true and better sacrifice. But the obvious improvement comes in Jesus being the one-time-for-all-time offering and in the permanent forgiveness that we receive because of that one-time-for-all-time offering. God himself says he will remember our sins no more. That's a big statement, right, for an all-knowing God to say, I will remember their sins no more. There is a real and lasting forgiveness for our sin only in the new covenant of Jesus. Consider this kind of more exhaustive comparison of the old and new covenants, what we're leaving behind and what we're offered in Christ. It's the blood of animals versus the blood of Christ. It's written on stone versus written on hearts. It's shadow versus substance. It's glorious versus more glorious. It's ended with an ending versus unending. It's the law of Moses versus the law of Messiah. It's the law of works versus the law of flesh, of faith, I'm sorry, the law of faith. It's the law of sin and death versus the law of spirit and life. It's many sacrifices over and over again versus one sacrifice. It's powerless to save versus powerful to save. It's annual atonement versus eternal atonement. It's earthly tabernacle versus heavenly tabernacle. It's ministry of death versus ministry of life. It's outer form of flesh versus inner reality of the spirit. It's the ministry of condemnation versus the ministry of reconciliation. Which column does your life reflect? Do we live as if we have encountered the grace of this new covenant, or do we live like we're still under the burden of the law? Do we say Jesus has forgiven us, but act like he needs to get back up on the cross? Do we get distracted by earthly tabernacles or do we celebrate the fact that we are seated with Christ in the true and better heavenly tabernacle by faith? Do we believe that God claims us as his own or do we act like we need to earn his favor every time we mess up? Beloved, let us recognize and embrace the reality of the new covenant in our lives. 
There is no contest here. Jesus is the true and better high priest of a true and much better covenant. Let's pray. God, I thank you for um, the, the amazing way that your scripture can, can point us to such a rich, detailed, exhaustive, uh, complicated history of you and your people throughout the history of the Old Testament. And yet with a book like Hebrews, the author can go in and, and say, look, look at what all this pointed us to. It's form, it's shadow, it's type, it's a precursor, it's something that points us to Jesus. And while it was what God had put in place to interact with his people, it all was pointing to a need for faith, faith in you, faith in a king to come, a savior to come. And so while we have shadow, we have form, we have ritual in our history, God, I pray that our reality now would be this new covenant by faith, that we would trust in the lasting sacrifice of Christ and trust in the the ministry of Jesus who stands now to intercede for us eternally, his lasting kingdom, his lasting priesthood, both without end. And that his sacrifice was good and sufficient and powerful to save, meaning our forgiveness is without end. That our relationship with you, God, is without end. That they are eternal. They are forever. We are sealed in the Holy Spirit. And so, God, I pray that when we look at a passage like today, which has a lot of uh, detail and a lot of pointing us to history, that, um, God, you would just let those promises just rise to the top, just shine out from the text. That we would see the true and better promises of the new covenant that you've made towards us. That our transformation is not from the outside to the inside, but from the inside out. You give us hearts of flesh to believe, to trust in you. Faith to believe, new life that is forever. And so Jesus, I pray that we would walk in that grace and be able to extend that grace to others who are still striving, still struggling still trying to bring sacrifices to the altar, so to speak, still trying to earn your favor over and over again. God, let us point them to true and lasting forgiveness in the grace of Jesus. And we ask these things in his name. Amen.